Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Josh Lindsay, from the Movie Proposal Podcast. With me is our first-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Josh Lindsay. Hello, Christian Taylor. And next to Christian is, again, our trusty, dusty, research extraordinaire, button-pushing guy, Jason Rugg. Hey there. Hello. You know, he really doesn't push buttons. Yes, he, he does. He's he literally... He types on the keyboard. They're those, buttons. Those are buttons. All right. It's right. <laughs> <laughs> just a lot of buttons. I just don't think those are buttons. I don't think they qualify as buttons. But anyway, hi, everybody. Hello. <laughs> it's been a long time. I've missed you guys. You've been traveling. I have certainly been traveling. Last time, I know you've been to New York. Have you been anywhere else since we spoke last? No. I you know, went to Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Then I came home, and then I packed up and went to New York. And I've been in New York for like eight days. And I got back home on Monday night, tried to recover, and uh, I'm packing up to leave for D.C. in a couple Oof, of days. Man, I mean, oh my head man. is spinning, especially with everything that happened in New York. So well, we have a lot to catch you up on. Yes, let's hear it. Let's. Uh, where was the first screening in New York? So the first one was at um, Anthology Film Archives in Manhattan. Um, I was really looking forward to this screening because at the same time I was doing a screening, it was sort of old home week for me. Um, I was so thankful to have my best friend from college, Colette Hildebrand, otherwise known as Coco. Um, she was coming down from Albany to meet me, and we were going to stay with her parents in Huntington, New York, uh, for the week. And I hadn't seen her in 35 years, so I was mm. really excited to see her. And the icing on the cake was that her father was a World War II veteran. Oh, my goodness. And I never knew that, of course, until this podcast, or podcast, till this film came up. Uh, so anyway, I got there on Friday. Coco picked me up at LaGuardia Airport. Have either one of you been there? It uh, is. I was there in May. It's what such a nightmare! A mess. It is oh a nightmare. Gosh. Don't go to Laguardia like for ten years. <laughs> I am so glad that you didn't try and do rideshare. Yes. Oh, I know. I've heard that was the rideshare is oh, a nightmare. It took like an hour and a half <laughs> to get an Uber. <laughs> it's bad. It was terrible. Wow. <laughs> They're trying to upgrade and make it nicer and newer, and like there's one terminal, like the Southwest Terminal, is brand new and it's awesome. And everything else is hell in a handbasket. Wow. It's like terrible. Okay. So anyway, flew into uh, LaGuardia, drove out to Long Island, met her parents. Um, and the next day on Saturday, we got ready to like put together this reception. So um, the uh, theater was covered by a donor. Uh, thank you, Nora Whalen. Um, and we... You know, we're going to do our own little reception. So, Coco and her mom and I, Anne, hi, Anne, we did this wonderful little reception. We put out all of our um, stuff on the table. One little fun side note is when I was leaving Anne and Frank Nataro's garage, I saw a pair of wooden shoes on their you know, in their garage on a shelf. And I was like, wooden shoes? What are these wooden shoes doing here? There's wooden shoes in our film. And so that's what the French kids wore before, you know, the liberation, because that's all they had. And uh, she's like, oh, I don't know. I got it somewhere. You can have it. And I was like, awesome. It'll look great on my display table. That will come in later. All right. Anyway, so we go down there. We set up the display. Some of my high school friends showed up there, Dirk Freakin and Lidecker. Um... And it was just super meaningful to me uh, that uh, Jack Rapley was there. Kids from my high school came out to support me, so that was neat. We had um, a woman who was from the French Embassy Cultural Services. She runs Films on the Green in New York, where they exhibit 
French films. She came with her daughter. Um, she's from the Normandy area, and they were just there. Another French woman came who was a friend of a friend, the Peelers. Um, and then we had Frank Nataro, who was our World War II veteran. So during the week, I got to learn more about Frank, and I got to learn about his service in World War II. And he went to Yale. And so he had done the first year at Yale when he kind of got called up. And he and a bunch of his Yale classmates left school and went to fight. And when they came back, they had lost 30 of their classmates. Um, So he still has a book with all of their names starred in it. And, you know, during the week, I got to spend time with him. He's 95, um, still sort of taking care of himself. His wife helps. And uh, he's lonely, you know, and and doesn't get out much. People don't listen to his stories. And I just felt so honored to be able to spend time with him and get to know him. And – I think it meant so much that we care about what he did. Sure. And he was um, like, you know, still saying, well, I didn't fight and I didn't really, I wasn't in a major conflict. He was a medic and he was in China and he was in, uh, you know, just forest somewhere else, like India, I think. And uh, he thought that was nothing. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he thought that was nothing. So anyway, I'm like, you're here representing the greatest generation and especially those that didn't make it. So so anyway, we get to the theater, we show the film, he gets up beforehand and talks about how, um, you know, important these lives were and these friends were. Uh, And then afterwards, the film closes, I get up to thank people and he jumps out of his chair and says, I just can't sit still. You have to tell, you know, you thank you. This is so amazing. I just keep seeing all of my friends and all of the guys that didn't come back. So many memories. And uh, this project is so important. And as he began talking, he just got more and more emotional. And then finally, like, just had to sit down in a chair and uh, couldn't finish. And so it was just this powerful moment where you could tell this film does something. And I think that's been the most rewarding thing as a filmmaker, to be able to see uh, that something I did touches people that way, that makes them want to jump out of their chair or talk about an experience. And um, so for me, it was a very rewarding screening. Uh, We had a general there, and she brought her family. um, And there was just lots of people that it meant a lot to. So that was really neat. And... um, I went back and sort of spent the rest of the week with the Nataros getting ready for the next screening. Uh, the next screening was going to be at the Stony Brook School, which is a Christian boarding school in Long, Long Island, New York. That is where I went to high school. So uh, when you talk about growing up, you reference Mississippi a lot. I do. And so when I first heard you went to school in New York, I'm like, I'm confused. I thought you were <laughs> in Mississippi till you're like 21, and then you moved out. And so where where does New York fit into all this? Yeah, well, so I was born and raised in Mississippi, and then things got a little cray-cray in my town, and uh, you know, drugs were starting to happen, and my parents did not want me a part of any of that. And there were boys that were throwing rocks in my window because my parents wouldn't let me go out and do things. And, you know, I was starting to lie and get a little bit rebellious. And um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Elizabeth Elliot, um, but Elizabeth Elliot went to Wheaton College, and she was a Christian author. Her husband was a missionary, Jim Elliot, oh, right. to the Alka Indians and in Ecuador. He was murdered. She went back and lived with them. Yes, And okay. so uh, she was friends with my parents, 
her daughter and son-in-law really? lived in my little town Get of Laurel, Mississippi. Yeah, wow. and so my da- my dad, and my mom were lamenting about this wayward daughter and what were they were going to do. And Elizabeth Elliot said, "Well, I'm centered on- in New York City. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a wholesome school there filled with." <laughs> Yeah, well, she was on the board of the Stony Brook School in Long Island, not necessarily in New York City. Um, And truthfully, it was uh, God's mercy and grace for me because it was an amazing school. Picture your typical English boarding school. My headmaster was even from, or my assistant headmaster was actually from England, Mm. and he ran it like this English boarding school. But it's this beautiful, peaceful little haven right across the street from SUNY Stony Brook. And so I was there from ninth to 12th grade, and they had this thriving theater program there. And so I got really involved in that, and that's how I you know, started really having this desire to be an actress, et cetera, et cetera. So wow. it's a boarding school. I might, while I was there, my dad, I was going to leave after my freshman year, just as a side note. And uh, I cried like my whole year. I ended up on working suspension. Like I really didn't want to be there. I wanted to go home. But while I was there, Ronald Reagan became president. And my father was appointed deputy undersecretary of agriculture. And so my parents moved to Washington while I was a freshman in high school. And then when I went home for the summer, I didn't know anybody. I was not at home. And so all of my now friends were at Stony Brook. So I went back. And um, this year was our 35th high school reunion. Wow. So everybody comes back. It's not just for a day. It's for the whole weekend. And... um, I had been talking to my school about maybe teaching a film class. So they set it up for me to teach a film class on Friday, which was super rewarding. I taught school for 10 years, so it was great to actually come in and uh, teach something that I've learned and demonstrate something that I produced. I I thought I knew everything there is to know about you. I didn't know you taught school, nor that you went to school in in Really? When did when when did you teach? <laughs> so when did you, you fit so, that in? <laughs> yeah, I know it's kind of crazy. But um, when I graduated from college, I did a year with a theater company where I traveled all over the U.S. I knew that. Uh-huh. So then, when that was done, I worked as a press secretary for a short period of time until I got in Washington, as one does. Yes, yeah. of course. <laughs> and um, and then in that time, I uh, ended up getting married, having a child. During this time where I I had a little child, I really couldn't do a lot except teach. So I taught school, uh, started teaching preschool, then it expanded into PE and drama and after school. So I did that (laughs) for the first 10 years I was married. I taught school. But just the special subjects that I actually knew something about. So you taught a class at Stony Brook on Friday. Yep, I did. And that went great. And then... um, on Saturday, you know, we hung out with all of our friends, and Sunday was when we were going to have the screening. Now, this is where it gets just a little bit overwhelming for me, and I'm still trying to process it all. But basically, for every screening, I always say to people, do you know any veterans? We'd like to have guests of honor, and our veteran, we'd love to have our veterans be our guests of honor. Or do you know any French people? You know, could you invite them? And Or are there any high school kids? I'm always trying to put together those three groups because they're very disparate groups of people that I think our film brings together. And it's great to have a conversation afterwards. So I've always said that. It only happens, like, not all three of those pieces have ever been at okay. a screening. So, um, and I kind of never expected. But I have always had a vision that this film 
would do something bigger than, you know, just air on Netflix or whatever, that it would begin a discussion in our country among people that we need. So I get there and they're like, okay, we've got two French families coming and five veterans. Wow. And we're giving the kids extra credit, so we should have a good group there. Right. And I was like, awesome. So I get there, and um, it's in the theater where I did all of the acting when I was in high school. Wow. And I realize, like, I go out there, all the stage lights are up, and I'm getting ready, and I stand there, and I look out on the stage. And I realized, like, the last time I was there was when – I was in school, and at that time, I was doing the Fantastics. I actually played the mute, believe it or not. Oh. And so, <laughs> I know, it's so ironic. Uh, I think it was actually a lesson for my director, we laugh about this, because the play before that, I had the lead role in Whose Life Is It Anyway? It's a three-hour show, basically, and it all revolves around my bed, you know? So yeah. I was like the center of attention. And, um, and actually, that was the most moving performance ever, because... A few days before Whose Life Is It Anyway, and that's the story of a quadriplegic who requests the right to die, uh, a good friend of ours at the school was playing football, and he was paralyzed from the neck down. Oh, man. Oh. And just right before that, our director's like, you know, this happens, and it's not just something out there. We know people, and he read us an article about a school nearby where that had happened to a football player. And then, like, two days later, it happens on our own campus. So... Our school, being a Christian school, really wondered whether or not this play should go forward because she, it ends with her getting the right to die. And that, of course, is not the Christian answer to some sort of debilitating, terrible circumstance. Uh, in the end, the boy's parents really wanted it to go forward, and the school decided um, that it should as long as we would have follow-up discussions in our classes. And so it was this really intense time on campus for everyone. Um, and interestingly enough, the Lord used it profoundly in my life because I was I'd worked on this so hard. Neil, my director, had even taken me to see Buddy in the hospital so that I would understand what a quadriplegic experience was really like. And it really hit home when Buddy asked me to scratch his nose. And I realized, wow, he, he can't even scratch his nose. I mean, it was just this profound experience. And so... Um, I was so sad when I was on the verge of having all of it just canceled and nobody see it. And I think I was just crying one night while they were, you know, debating whether or not this was going to happen. And Neil said to me, Christian, did you work hard? And I was like, yeah. He's like, did you learn anything? I was like, of course I did. And he's like, well, then why does anyone need to see it? Wow. And I just like sat there, you know. I was like, wow, that's... Hold, hold on a second. <laughs> <laughs> that was really profound. You, would you... You could say the same question to your film, but but because people see the film, it is impacting lives. But what was interesting is I think he really knew me. And I think he was teaching me something in the moment. You know, I think only if you know, special teachers in the world can you can take seize on those teachable moments, you mm -hmm. know? And for me, it has stayed with me forever because I realized up to that point, it was about me. Mm -hmm. It was about me. And that actually goes to the heart of, of what I was, I'm going to tell you. So back then, that lesson I learned was that work up to that point for that play had been about me. In that moment, it changed. 
And I realized that if it was canceled, it wasn't the end of who I was. It didn't mean that my work and my efforts were for nothing. You know, that what I had done was still value. There was still value in it. And the show did end up, you know, going off. And we had three packed houses and there were standing ovations every night. And so that was the most memorable time for me on that stage. And here I was now, 2019, 35 years later, I'm standing on this stage. I never thought I'd be there again. And yet I'm here with the next biggest thing I've ever done, and I'm about to show it here. So it was really overwhelming at the when I first began. Mm-hmm. And then kids start coming in, and uh, then uh, the like the um, advancement director comes over and says, "I would like to introduce you to one of the French families." And so it was this man Pierre, and he looked at me and said "Bonjour," and said, "You know, how are you?" Then we talked in Spanish, which I thought was kind of interesting. Spanish, yes, because I said, I think I said um, "Muy bien" to something he said, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" And then he started speaking Spanish, and then I realized we could talk Spanish to each other, which I know much better than French. But you know um, Spanish. That's yes. the third thing I've learned today. <laughs> That's that I what didn't she know taught at you. school. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just that I learned how to speak Spanish because the woman that took care of Hunter when he was little didn't speak any English, so I had to learn Spanish. Hmm. That's funny. It's funny that you don't know these things. We've known each other for like twenty. Well, it's just things you think years. would come up, you know. But anyway, yeah. go ahead. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, so he looks behind me, and you remember those wooden shoes I mentioned earlier? I do. He looked and he said, "Oh my gosh." Uh-oh. I wore shoes just like that when I was a kid. Wow. And I was like, and it was very nostalgic for him, like right off the bat. And then I said to him, you know, I really appreciate you coming. I want you to know you're the representative for the French people. This film is dedicated to them. And I would like to introduce you first. And he's like, uh-uh, no, 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 no. You have to introduce the veterans first who are already starting to come in. And I said, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> uh, but the film is to thank the veterans for how they treat or thank, thank the French for how they treat our veterans. And he said, okay. I, then I went to meet the next family. And I, the same exact conversation happened. And, I, and so she assented to be introduced. And so when we get into the, um, you know, right before I'm about to introduce the veterans, there were supposed to be five. And two of them were D-Day veterans. However, the van that brings wheelchair-bound veterans broke. So... Two veterans weren't able to make it, and of course, it was the two D-Day veterans. Mm. And I was so bummed. But nevertheless, we had three veterans there. And, um, you know, as, as we were about to start, they all sat down. I introduced myself, told them to be prepared for lots of questions afterwards and things like that. We start the program, and I go to introduce the French people, and I say, I've met this family tonight. And their responses to me are typical of every French person I've ever met. Um, and I explained what they said. And I said, but I would like them to come up here and tell you why they would prefer the veterans to be introduced before mm-hmm. themselves. And so they did. And their answers were just so from the heart. You know, they were like, one of them grew up in the south of France. One of them grew up in Brittany, which is next to Normandy. And they talked about how, as young kids, they were always taken to the Normandy American Cemetery. They were always told what was done for their freedom and encouraged to, you know, uh, participate in those ceremonies. Um, and so it really brought it home for these kids in the audience, a different perspective. And then we introduced the veterans, told their service records. They received standing ovations. And then the film starts. 
Well, during the film, I sneak around the back and I'm watching everybody watch. Yes, we do do that. <laughs> and um, kids were, there were a couple of kids sleeping and I didn't really hear anybody crying or anything like that. And I was like, oh man, <laughs> this is going to be a dud. The movie ends and, you know, I come up and I thank everybody and say some things. I don't even remember what I said. And then I open it up for questions. Not a single hand goes up. Like, there are no questions. There's probably 160 high school students. Right. And then we have some teachers and some parents and, you know, the veterans and the French people. And the director of advancement, Luke Leo, says, don't worry. They'll talk to you afterwards. And I was like, okay. So I tell everybody goodbye. And the kids just flood the stage. And they come to me. And the first ones that I talked to, they just were so grateful and told me how much it meant to them and told me how much they learned. And I was just so overwhelmed. I, I really didn't know what to say. And then Luke Leo says, Christian. And I look up beyond the one student I was talking to. And the students had surrounded all of the veterans. Mm-hmm. And they were asking for their photos and their autographs. And, you know, there were people talking to the French people. And then I watched the French people go and sit at the feet of the veterans. I mean, I was wiped out. It was just <laughs> way more than I could handle. Um, because, you know, I realized that my vision for the film has to bring, you know, bring veterans and high school students together and French people together. But I saw that way down the road, you know, mm-hmm. in the future. I did not expect it to happen this weekend, and I certainly didn't expect the first time to be at my high school, you know, on the stage mm-hmm. where the, my other most memorable moment happened. Yeah. I mean, it was just like the Lord, right, to give me something like that, I think. to I just felt like He was present in that room. And the wonderful thing was I was able to share my faith and felt like I, you know, felt like I had... God called me to do this thing and share different examples of where I see him working. And nothing was more profound than that moment. Until, (laughs) until we leave. And we left because the VA hospital called and said, those guys need to come back. It's dinner time. (laughs) And I'm like, if you're going back, I'm going to go with you and see those D-Day veterans. So I get in the car. We get over to the VA hospital. And they introduced me to the first D-Day veteran. He's a 101st paratrooper, and he's eating his dinner. And I go in to explain to him I'm an ambassador for the French people to tell them how much they appreciate his um, you know, service and what he did. And he starts crying, and his hands are shaking. And you know, you can just – I showed him our trailer, and you could just see how much it meant to him. And then I hear from behind me, Normandy <laughs> – my brother fought in Normandy. And I like looked over at him and I see all the nurses like trying to shush him. And then he's going, his name was Frank Bonanzio. And I was like, Bonanzio? I'm like, do you have a brother named Daniel Bonanzio? Yeah, Danny. Danny's my brother. And I was like, are you from New Jersey? And he's like, yeah, I'm from New Jersey. I'm like, did Danny drive a truck? Yeah, we all drove trucks. I was like, can this really be happening? And so Daniel Bonanzio, I've, I've talked about him on the podcast before, I think. Daniel I met in February of 2019, just you know six months ago or mm-hmm. whatever, in Florida, because 
I had asked the village's paper writer, veteran beat writer, to connect me with any veterans who maybe would like to go to Normandy. Mm -hmm. So they connected me to Dan Bonanzio, who then subsequently did go to Normandy. So I know Dan and his family's daughter, Barbara, really well. And so I'm thinking, you know, is this the same guy? So I realize I have their phone numbers in my in my phone. So I called Dan Bonanzio and he doesn't answer. So I left a message. Then I called his brother or his son-in-law, Hank. And I hear, stop calling me, you jerk. Click. And I was like, well, that was weird. For real? Yeah, that for real happened. (laughs) At first I thought I was making it up. But then later they admitted that, yes, Hank, in fact, had done that. (laughs) And then I called Barbara, his daughter, Dan's daughter. And she's like, Christian. And I said, Barbara, I have a question for you. Does Dan have a brother named Tom? Yeah, he does. Well, do you know where he is? No. I'm like, is he in Long Island? Maybe. I think I'm standing right next to Dan's (laughs) brother. (laughs) Sure enough, they were brothers, and they had not been in touch with each other, didn't know where they were. And so I was able to set up a video call with them, a reunion, you know, and it was hilarious. Like, take your hat off. Let me see. Do you got any hair? And they're both taking off their hats and both of them are bald. And Dan goes, yeah, you look just like me. And they're talking about their kids. And anyway, it was so precious. Uh, and I just thought, you cannot make this stuff up. Right, right. You yeah. just can't. And, uh, you know, I was thinking like, This is just the kind of adventure that when you are really invested in your project, and it's really not just a money thing or not just a film thing, um, this is what happens, and you can't make it up. And you have to, I think, be open to those things, you know? My takeaways in all these stories is – because you didn't enter into making this film so that you could have these types of experiences. I mean, you were obviously passionate from the beginning, but – it's because of your passion for wanting to tell this story combined with a history of relationships and the person you are and that sort of, sort of thing that these experiences and occurrences are, you know, are born out of, right? Yeah. You know? And so, yeah, because there are a lot of times people go to Hollywood or want to make films and, and there's no real heart or passion behind it. Uh, you know, maybe the, it's more about money or fame or ego or whatever it is and – I mean, it's, it's, who knows? Like, I, I think I said this before, like the fact that you just made this film has already, you know, impacted so many lives, but it just keeps going. I, I feel like I am riding a wave that, <laughs> sure. that, that honestly only began because I thought, somebody's got to hear this story. Right, right. Yeah. And, well, there's nobody else here to tell it. I, I don't know how to, but I'll figure it out. And I just get up the next day and do the next thing. And I never, my only goal was to tell the story, get it out there. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, yeah, it would be nice if it eventually gets picked up for distribution or something like that. But my goal certainly has not been to make money, you know. And it wasn't really even to make a film. Like, I never had any desire to be a filmmaker. But um, I know that I, d- I think if I had other pressures, one critical thing as I look back is that I chose to go the donation self um, – financing route Mm -hmm. in that, you know, I put in a lot of the money, other people I worked with put in, you know, their resources. uh, And then we filled in the rest with donations. So there's no investors breathing down my back, stuff like that. Um, I have the luxury of letting this project develop as it does. And um, 
So I've really, really enjoyed that. It's very fulfilling. And, you know, it has brought people together. It's educated people. Um, it's moved people. It's changed people. I had a young girl call me the other day and say, I saw your movie in, in Tennessee, and uh, I was really moved by it. And I just realized I work with a Vietnam veteran. And I asked him one question, but I need some more questions. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, and this girl was 20. And I was like, yes. <laughs> like, that is exactly right. what my hope would be. All right. Yeah. And because a lot of times when you think of making films, you do think of like, you know, being in theaters and winning awards, you know, how much did it make in the box office. Very, we never really think about it, movies flying under the radar and we'll just say at a grassroots level, impacting lives in the way that this film is doing. Right, but I think every filmmaker really does want, they they get in this business because, you know, they want to make a difference and they do want to move people. Mm -hmm. Like you have to want to move people and and challenge them to think or, you know, most films are about that, you know, and... I just uh, think most people. Well, I mean, some are for entertainment, so, but even the ones that are in for. Let's take Spider-Man and the universe, right? There's still a message there. They still want people to think. Right, 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 right. And but then there's a gajillion films you never hear about that are trash, and it's just you know, like, true. <laughs> they're not there. There is that. They're not there to bring generations together and teach history and change lives, you know, like they're there to make a buck to get attention, you know, and so, I mean, that's true in all industries, you know, there's different yeah. motivations is what I'm getting at. And so, and, and I, I, what I'm gathering from this is, is because your motivation is, is you're passionate about sharing a story and doing this medium so it can reach more people in a way that brings people together and it's about history and and not just telling a cute story. You know, it's not just right. a moral tale. You know, it's like these are real people. Well, and if you want to look at the business perspective, I mean, these are impact screenings, right? We're, we're, we're trying to find out, does this movie make an impact on people? What is their response and reaction? We're also building community at the same time. Mm-hmm. We're building our social media numbers. We're testing out, you know, we're trying to find out who our audience lands with. You know, this weekend I realized our audience is from like, 10 to 100. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and that shouldn't be the case. That should not be the case. Everybody wants me to pick a demographic or pick an age or pick a location. And I realize I can't because I have two spectrums of people that it does reach. And so, um, you know, by doing these screenings in different parts of the country and even in France and over a long period of time as we change and edit the film, you learn a lot about your niche audience and you learn a lot about your film. And so there's so much value just in getting to know the people that are watching it and how seeing how your film lands. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, this is the kind of filmmaker I want to be. I want to be the kind of filmmaker who does a work that causes people to think that when they leave the theater, they are different than when they walked in in some way. Um, and l- people have gotten different messages. Some people come and say, I, I thought the French always hated us. I had no idea they felt this way about it. Well, that's Americans. because of The Simpsons. The Simpsons really yes. have not painted the picture of the French in a way that makes them seem like they're our friends. <laughs> right. They hate Americans, right? Right. Well, and it's not just The Simpsons. I, I mean, I, I know I'm exaggerating, but yeah, it's, a, it's a kind of a it's cultural. Mostly the Simpsons. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's mostly, but it is mostly The Simpsons. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I will say this in the midst of all this project, when I have seen how powerful the art of film is and the fact that I do believe I'm a good storyteller. 
and uh, that's a gift that I think God gave me. Um, and it's been so rewarding. I hope I have the opportunity to do more. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you will. I have no doubt. Yeah. And in the process, we will learn more things about Christian Taylor that we did not know. <laughs> so on that note, I want to thank everyone for joining us for this extended version. Well, we have one other thing to say. What's that? Well, right now, today's date is October 10th, 2019. And if you're listening to this as they come out, um, I just want you to know we just finished our New York screenings. Next week, we have our D.C. screenings. So if you or anyone you know is in D.C., please have them come and join us. I think we have about 50 seats left. Uh, you can reserve your seat at normandystories.com slash screenings. Uh, it's at the University and Club in D.C. We've got some really special people that are going to be there. Uh, after that, we come back to this Chicago area for about a week or two, and then we head to Branson, Missouri, where Danny and Flo will be. Danny, the girl who wore freedom, uh, will be there for a whole week. Then we go to the Villages, Florida, where Danny and Flo will be, and then we go to Southern California. So, yeah. I mean, we're on the road until like the end of November. Pray I survive. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we really would appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less, so anything helps. Also, if you're able to share the news about the girl who wore freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email, and sign up for our newsletter at Normandy Store. Please go to normandystories.com slash donate to make a donation today.